0: Welcome to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. In this podcast, we will be speaking with various real estate and business professionals about real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and financial freedom. So if you're interested in learning about real estate investing, then stay tuned and be sure to take advantage of the free tips and strategies that will be shared by our
1: weekly guests. And now, your host, Penny Lubinsky. Welcome to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. I am your host, Penny Lubinsky, and today we have a really awesome guest, Savannah Arroyo. Savannah is also known as the Net Worth Nurse. She is a full-time registered nurse in Los Angeles, California. She uses her skills as a leader in healthcare operations to manage multifamily syndications. She also helps busy medical professionals create passive income through real estate investing. Savannah, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thank you. I'm super stoked to be here
1: glad to get you on. Um, first question, you're a successful nurse out in California. What gets you interested in real estate in the first place? What did you just like wake up one day? Like I should do real estate or like, <laughs> what was it? What inspired you?
0: Yeah, definitely. I was, I was on maternity leave with my second daughter and just counting down the days until I had to go back to work and really feeling like with now our growing family that my husband and I would have to be doing something to create an additional stream of income. We wanted to start looking for ways to create some passive wealth. We were just thinking about our current work schedule. We both work full-time jobs Monday through Friday, like eight to four 30. And, we're trying to figure out how we would be able to take our daughters to swim lessons or soccer practice or go to field trips down the road. And our current work schedules just really aren't that flexible. And so we were trying to look for ways where we could kind of create additional income that would offset. So we could potentially maybe do part-time or be self-employed or do something like that. And so really having the second baby was the motivating factor.
1: Okay. So that made you notice that you guys are, even though like financially you could be okay but you don't have time freedom and more passive income would allow you essentially to free up some time and free up yourselves to be able to be more free. So I guess that's pretty much the name of the game, right? Yeah. Time freedom. Absolutely. Right. Cool. Um, All right. So you're living in California. Where are you actually investing?
0: We live in Los Angeles, California. We have single family homes over in Atlanta, Georgia and apartment complexes up in Oregon.
1: Okay. So my follow-up question is how do you invest long distance? And number two, the next question is, how do you choose a market? So once you're not investing in your backyard, like what should the listeners know and what should somebody be aware of when they're choosing a market? Some, you know, positives, negatives, you know, what should make you choose a certain market?
0: Yeah, definitely. So for us, we were, we live in Los Angeles, California, the price point to entry is really high here. And we were just looking for ways that in different markets where we could really make our capital stretch. And really get the most bang for our buck. And so we had kind of explored the idea of investing out of state. A lot of people do it. We were listening to podcasts for about people who have invested successfully out of state, just where we are with technology and the ability to use different apps and different features to really kind of see and explore market, analyze data, stats. And I think I heard on a podcast someone was saying that because they invest out of state, they're not as likely to just drive by the property whenever they want. So it kind of takes kind of a lot of that ownership in terms of like feeling super responsible for things that your property off. And because we were looking to hire property management companies to run our investment properties anyways, because we work full time, we were really looking for a way that we could do that out of state. And so we were kind of putting systems in place to make that work and creating a big team was the number one place. So a great broker who was getting us deals, property management that we trust, contractors, vetting out maintenance people through our property management team, and really just doing a lot of that on a referral basis. So asking our property management who they usually use for maintenance and contractors and which contractors they usually work for property management, which brokers they usually refer property management. So really just getting a lot of referral to build up our team over there out of state. And then us looking on Yelp reviews, we were doing a lot of interviews, um, especially for property management teams, uh, making sure that their experience and their vision uh, really aligned with our business strategy. So that was really kind of the number one step in putting those systems in place. And then in terms of exploring the market, so a lot of things that we were looking for is population growth, um, job growth, just variety within the market growth as well um, different trends what companies are moving over there so in Atlanta Georgia we have a lot of friends here in Los Angeles California that were talking about like the film industry over there and how it's grown very well and so we were just kind of looking at it for a lot of different reasons and it is an amazing market to invest in and because we're out of state then that's where
1: we have to rely on our team to kind of get things to get done over there. Right, interesting, and like I want to just touch on what you said before about like um, not investing in your backyard could actually end up being a plus because you're not able to micromanage it, and like that's actually one of the first things like that screams out um, opportunity usually when you know someone's underwriting a deal. It's that oh, this is actually self-managed by you know somebody in the area or an older person that that thinks they can self-manage this asset, and um, usually they just can't do a very good job. So I feel like. Those are usually the greater opportunities for the next person that's buying it when somebody tries to self-manage. For some people, it works. For some people, it doesn't work. um, But definitely investing long distance in a different state that like forces you, I guess, to build out your team and really rely on the right people to do the right jobs for you, as opposed to you just going micromanaging yourself, because I think no good comes from that, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was huge for us. And I've heard people who micromanage or they'll take all the calls. And and I love how you pointed out that that's a potential for opportunity. When we're looking at apartment complexes to purchase, we definitely look for ones that have been self-managed or just like poorly managed. And those are usually
1: huge steals. Right, absolutely. So when someone's breaking into a a new market, right? um, They're not familiar in that market or they they may even be, be completely new to real estate. Um, one of the bigger challenges that they face is um, getting brokers to trust them like we all know that right now finding deals is pretty difficult and it's a seller's market it's hard to get something that pencils out um so we're going to rely heavily on brokers sending us you know either a good off-market deal or you know a deal in general um but the problem is we all know that these brokers you know especially the good ones that have been doing this for 5 10 20 30 years they got a buyer's list from here to tomorrow of people that they already know and trust. And, you know, they have those existing relationships. Like, how did you break into that? And I'm curious, like, what suggestions can you give for the listeners that want to break into a new market that want to get the brokers to start trusting them?
0: Yeah, definitely. That's such a hard hurdle to jump when you're starting out as a newbie investor. And I think for us, we just really got specific on what we were looking for. And that gave us a lot of credibility with brokers. So when we, especially when we switched over from single family into multifamily, um, single family, we ended up going with new build townhomes and um, it was pretty streamlined in terms of getting those done. And But when it came to switching over into the multifamily realm and buying apartment complexes, we had zero experience doing that and so at that point we leveraged like our single family homes and we would vaguely just kind of talk about yeah we own property over in atlanta we wouldn't really get super specific on what kind of property that was and yeah when we talked to multiple brokers i mean we probably talked to like 20 brokers in the atlanta market and some of them would straight up ask like how many units we own or like what how many deals we've done or what was our last multifamily deal, and pretty quickly, they would catch on that. This was kind of our first one. And, um, some of us just, some of them never really like gave was given, we giving us good deals. And so we really hit a sweet spot with a broker up in Oregon, who was a young, hungry Marcus and Miller chat broker. And he never asked us our years of experience. And we, because we initiated the conversation in the sense of, we own property over in Atlanta, Georgia. We're looking into invest in the Oregon market. We're looking at, and this is where we got super specific on what we were looking at. We're looking from 12 to 30 units, one to $2 million value add in these sub markets. Like, what do you got? And I think because we were so specific on what we were looking for, um, that he was like, oh, they know what they're doing. Like they know what they're looking for. And so then by the time he got us deals, like we were able to take action on them very quick.
1: So it sounds like the main thing that brokers would be looking for is somebody to not waste their time and somebody that's actually educated, knows their stuff, knows what they're looking for, knows their niche. So essentially like it doesn't, you don't need to be their friend for the past 20 years. You don't need to be on their buyer's list and have bought like 20 assets from them already. You just have to do, I guess, a good enough job of proving to them that you actually know what you're talking about. You're not going to waste their time because obviously, you know, they get paid on, commission only and, um, you know, that they can actually trust you to, uh, you know, that so that when they get some sort of pocket listing or off-market deal, you know, they may send it your way.
0: Definitely. And I think another piece that I didn't mention was getting them feedback very quickly. So that was something that we do. We try to get them feedback within 48 hours of them sending us a deal. That's something that now my husband does all the underwriting for us. And so he'll look at the pro forma, the OM for the deal, all the financial like that they have and plug it in. And then he'll be able to give them feedback very quickly of like, oh, this looks like a good deal. Like, let me see these. I need these financials and asking for a little bit more or like, Hey, this isn't going to work, but keep us in mind for the next one that you come across. So giving them some sort of feedback, even if it's not going to work, just letting them know, Hey, it's not working because of this, or I can't achieve the returns for my investors on this specific deal. It doesn't look like, but keep me in mind for your next one. Just giving any sort of kind of feedback like that is very um, beneficial for the relationship. For sure.
1: I actually got that feedback from a broker recently. He was a CBRE broker. And um, obviously I think his buyer's list consists of like maybe thousands of emails. And we just had a great dialogue after a deal of like a back and forth. And like, we just got into a conversation about it. And he was like, you know, you'd be surprised like how few people on the entire email list actually get back to me, like with feedback, like so many people, A, are not looking at the deals in the first place, or B, are just looking at it and they may not be interested. So they'll just ignore me and they'll just assume I'll figure it out. But I think Either way, like whether you like it, you don't like it, you have questions. Like it never hurts to, you know, call the broker or email him back with questions and just give that feedback and just continue to like strengthen that relationship and you know keep keep that going so that you guys have like a long-term bond. Um, I'm curious, what do you like? How many deals? How many deals would you say that you guys have to look at like to get one under contract these days? I know like it's super competitive. And like you hear different numbers from everyone, but in your markets, like, w- what does it look like? I'm just, for for the new, for the new people getting involved in real estate, like, I just want them to hear like, how many deals do you have to look at till something actually starts penciling out?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, dozens for sure. I wouldn't say hundreds, but maybe like dozens, <laughs> like 20, 30, before you start getting one that you're like, okay, and kind of start pursuing a little bit more. Um, but I mean, you could do it, it. It Really, it's beneficial for when you're first getting started to just practice underwriting over and over and over again, because then once you do that, and if you're using a spreadsheet of some sort to kind of put in all the numbers, as you start getting practice with that, I mean, it's just like math. When you do math in school, right? The more practice you, did, you get of just doing problem after problem after problem, then you, by the end, by the time you take your test, you're rolling through them with your eyes closed. So it's pretty much the same thing in underwriting. It's putting in the numbers over and over and over again, repetitively. So that by the time you look at like a pro forma, you can eyeball it and say, Oh, this isn't going to be a good deal at all. I'm not even going to waste my time with underwriting it. So, um, I wouldn't try get frustrated with the process because the process is what gives you so much of your foundation when you move forward, looking at these deals.
1: Right. So just underwriting a million deals helps you in both ways. It helps you cancel out the bad ones quicker, but it also helps like after you've underwritten a whole bunch of deals, when something actually looks good, it kind of like pops out of your face. It's like, Hey, it it comes screaming at you. Like this one looks different than the rest. So I guess like, you know, that would help. Can we dive into one deal you've done?
0: Yeah, let's do, um, we can do a 24 unit up in Oregon that we closed on a couple of weeks ago.
1: Okay. Excellent. So first of all, how'd you find the deal?
0: Through a broker that we did our first uh, multifamily deal from, he saw that we were really quick to respond, closed on it. We're really great with our communication. And then as soon as we closed that one, he said, Hey, I have another value add deal that looks really good.
1: Okay. And what did you see in the deal that made you believe that this one's better than the rest?
0: So a strong value add component. There was a lot of outstanding capital expenditure items that weren't taken care of. It was poorly, poorly managed. The expenses were out of control. Um, they had one of the tenants on site managing it. It just w- very poorly. Um, so a lot of value add in terms of raising rents, uh, completing some of the capex items so that we can go to sell it for a good price in five years and then working to decrease some of those expenses to increase our net operating income.
1: Cool. So it sounds like a pretty solid value add that you had going on with that one. How did you finance this deal?
0: We used a local credit union again, who we used for our first deal, which is why I stress how important it is to have good teams. And if you start building up the right teams then it makes it super easy to get subsequent subsequent deals done because you already have your team in place. So we used the credit union that we used for our first deal. Um, It was 25% loaned uh, down payment. It was um, 3.8% and at five years and then it um, bridged, but we're planning to sell at five and then, um, yeah.
1: Cool. And you guys raised the capital yourselves for the down payment?
0: Yes. So we did raise the capital. We syndicated this out. Our total raise was um about 675,000 because we had like 180,000 in repairs and maintenance
1: oh wow okay yeah a big
0: chunk it needs a new roof it needs all new windows it needs new painting so there's the whole, whole outside of the building is pretty much getting redone and it'll look like a whole different building when we're done
1: okay and were there any hiccups along the way with this one
0: Yeah, definitely. Lots. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in in what part? In raising the capital, doing the inspection, the property management
1: team? Um, I mean, let's hear an inspection horror story. We haven't heard one of those in a while. Oh
0: man. Okay. Okay. So this is probably a class C area in a, in a class C neighborhood and, um, kind of touring the units. There was one unit that was just completely tore up and it was just, we were walking it with the property management or the the tenant that lives there who's like managing it and walking it with him and we walked in there and it was just literally trash all over the place It ended up being an issue because there was a baby in there so it kind of um, initiated some like
1: child protective services there claims. Was a, a baby without like any any parent or anything like that
0: Well, there was a parent in there, but there was literally trash and food and like dirt lit on every piece of the ground in the building. It was like so sad. And then there was like a two-year-old in there. So um, it ended up being like the property manager. Our inspector team said that they've been doing this 20 years. It was like the worst one they've ever seen. It would need a complete um, gut job. And then ironically, like three weeks later, they went in and like completely cleaned it and a lot of it was salvageable which it did not look like when we walked through it so it ended up being like good news and then that tenant got evicted before we took it over.
1: Oh okay that's probably the best news of the whole story is that you yes. didn't have to personally evict that that tenant. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Yeah that's pretty cool. So I guess like what we can learn from this is that like hiccups just happen no matter like how good the deal is like there's always going to be things coming up and there's you know just there's no way to possibly prepare for everything. So I guess the more experience, the more deals you close, the more you get out there, the better your team is, the more equipped you can be for handling these issues, like just when they pop up.
0: Yeah. And it's, I mean nothing's going to be perfect when you go to do your walk through your financials, like there's going to be stuff that comes up that you didn't expect, or that wasn't communicated to you by the broker, or the seller. And so if, if you make it a deal killer in your head, one that you kind of lose credibility with your broker, because if you're going back to your broker and saying, Hey, we're, we're killing this deal. We're not going to move forward because of this. And that broker is going to be like, okay, well, I'm not going to maybe send you deals anymore. If you're going to like completely drop out of them at the first sight of like anything going wrong. So it just goes to show that there's going to be things that come up and depending on how much they do affect your deal and your underwriting, usually it's in your best interest and the deal's interest to kind of move forward and figure out a solution for the problem instead of just killing the deal.
1: Right. And I feel like most sellers also, like once they have it under contract, they're they'll probably be willing to work with you. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if that was the case with you guys. Also, they'll work with you in order to make sure that it closes and that everybody can like, you know, sort of be at at an even happy place.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's negotiations for sure throughout the whole due diligence phase. So it's important to just be really um, proactive with your communication with your broker. And then they can go back and kind of talk to the seller and navigate some of those difficult conversations for sure.
1: Got it. Okay, you mentioned earlier, um, real estate gave you and your family the ability for to to have more time freedom, passive income, and all that good stuff. My question is, um, obviously, real estate allows the passive investors um, to have passive income um, and cash flow. But what about for the syndicators? What about the people actually doing the deal? Like after you close the deal? What does that look like? Like how much work? How many meetings per week per month? Like how much maintenance does that need?
0: Definitely. I love, I love that you pointed out that the income's not very passive because when I talk about passive income, I always like do it either with an asterisk or like something like for us as syndicators, it's definitely not very passive. I mean, certain aspects of it it is passive, but there is a lot of work that we do as operators of the deal. So when we close on it, um, I mean, just because we syndicate our deals, it's a lot of communication with our investors. We keep them in the loop and everything that we're doing, what's going on with the property. For the first six months, we send out monthly updates, just letting them know how it's going with the new acquisition and acquiring it, kind of do the turnover with property management companies, that sort of stuff. So the first six months, we're doing monthly. Um, emails out to our investors, and then we start doing disbursements and then quarterly updates. So it's a lot of communication on that respect. And then in terms of asset management, depending on what business strategy we're implementing. So for the 24 unit, we're um, implementing a water conservation. Well, I mentioned a lot of the stuff we're doing, but our biggest thing that we wanted to do first was a water conservation program because the water expenses were completely out of control. And it's in our best interest and our investors best interest to tackle this item first, because it's going to decrease those expenses right at the start. And then it'll start helping us with the, um, with the returns overall. So that was like one of the things we wanted to take care of first. So that's going in, having a plumber look at it. Our property management goes in, our new one, new property management team goes in, checks out all the units. They do videos on their iPhone. They upload them over to YouTube so we can see all the different leaks and kind of what's going on with the units. They take note of kind of just the overall um, condition that the unit's in. So a lot of work that goes into once you acquire a property to kind of start moving forward on the business strategies, depending what you're doing with it. If it's a strong value add, you're doing a lot of work. If it's more of a stabilized asset, you're kind of just hanging back and just managing
1: it. Mm -hmm. Got it. So essentially you're getting passive income, but you're not really as passive as the passive investors are because you're still responsible for running the deal, implementing the value add strategy, and just making sure that everything is going according to plan but it still is value add because you're still having the monthly cash flow from it. That is just coming in month after month. But the only little part is that you're also like working for it.
0: Yeah, definitely. For sure. We, my husband and I split up the business and then, um, but overall, I mean, we're doing this in addition to our full-time jobs. So we don't spend anywhere near 40 hours a week on this. Um, well, my husband does close to it because he's doing a lot of the asset management stuff, but because I'm in the hospital full-time, I don't have the ability to spend full-time hours on this. So for us, it is just the additional stream of income, but that's kind of like the big, how powerful real estate is to even passive investors coming into a deal. And that's kind of like my huge motivation behind launch, launching the network nurse and talking to other medical professionals about what I'm doing is because it's such an amazing opportunity. Real estate syndications are for people to passively invest in these deals and hand over their money to an operator someone who's willing to do all the work like my husband and myself because then it really it truly is passive you're handing over your investment to an operator who's running all aspects of the deal and then you're you're literally collecting checks on a quarterly basis without really having to do anything
1: yeah i i would say that is probably as passive income as passive income gets for for the investors Um, Yeah, that's and that's super cool. Um, All right, let's move on to the final four questions. These are more rapid uh, question answer type. Um, What is your why?
0: My why is time freedom and my family for sure 100% just being able to have the flexibility to go where we want when we want and do the things that we want to do without being committed to a job for 40 hours
1: a week. Love it. What is your favorite book?
0: Oh my gosh, I have so many. You um, want? Okay. Do they have to be real estate or? Um, no. You can pick whatever you'd like. Any book? Okay, I'm gonna say Untamed by Glennon Doyle. That book's amazing. Um, super, super good book. It's kind of like a memoir. Glennon Doyle's very, very good. Um, but like a real estate book, I just read Um, Crushing It by Gary V. And I wish that was something I read even earlier in my uh, real estate career, because it's all about like brand building and it, it came in at the right time for sure. But I, I, the first time I listened to it, I listened to it two more times on my audio book, just on repeat driving them, um, my work. Cause it's just so, so invaluable in terms of building a
1: brand. Okay. And I just wrote it down and I'm adding it to my book list and I should get <laughs> to it in like six years from now. So be sure to check in with me. Um, okay. What is the number one advice that you would give somebody just starting out in real estate? take
0: action. And I would maybe, maybe reach out to someone who's already doing what you want to be doing. So if you want to flip houses, or if you want to do burr house hacking, or you want to do multifamily or Airbnbs or land, like go on social media, find someone who's doing it and reach out to them, ask them how they got started. What did they do? What resources did, did they use? How did they start taking their first steps and just learn from other people who are already doing it?
1: Right. And I was actually mentioning in a previous podcast that I feel like the real estate world in general, like everyone's very willing to help. So like when you do reach out to people, yeah, you're going to come across some people <laughs> that are not so willing to help. But for the most part, most, most people really want to help the newbies, um, help people get in the game because they've seen the benefits. They've seen how it changed their life and they're more than happy and willing to you know, help other people get there too. So yeah, great advice with that. Um, no, not real estate related. What is your favorite hobby?
0: Probably going to the beach with my daughters. We do it every weekend. We head over to the beach every weekend that we're in town. We'll usually go to Santa Monica or Malibu beach. And it's just, it's such, even if we just go for a couple hours, it's just my favorite part of the week.
1: Okay, cool. And where can people reach you?
0: Yeah. The net worth nurse. So you can find me under the net worth nurse on all social media handles. So that's Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram. I'm super active on there. I'll give you an inside look of kind of what I'm doing in real estate and also some stuff from my personal life. Um, My website's thenetworthnurse.com. And I love connecting with people exactly like you were saying. I love when people reach out to me. I'm a wealth of knowledge. I'm more than happy to share what I'm working on and um, different things that I've done in my business. So um, please reach out to me if anything I've said has stuck with you.
1: And you know, it's funny, like the net worth nurse and me have been friends on like Instagram and all (laughs) these social medias for like a very long time, but I just never knew that that was actually you. And like, we never actually met (laughs) before recently, but I'm definitely pretty active there. And I know you're always willing to help. And this podcast is an example of that coming on, sharing so much value and really just trying to help people get into the game and achieve financial freedom in their own lives. So with that, thank you so much for joining. You really did share so much value and i um, looking forward to uh, maybe getting you back on here someday.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.